Hello and welcome to our Women in Research podcast series. I'm Sharon Parker, a Kathleen Fitzpatrick Australian Laureate Fellow and the lead for this series. I'm honoured to be talking today with Sue O'Reilly, who is the Director of the ARC Centre of Excellence for Core to Crust Fluid Systems at Macquarie University. This centre integrates previously disparate fields, geochemistry, petrophysics, geophysics, numerical, thermodynamic modelling, etc., to reach a new level of understanding of Earth's dynamics. Let's listen to what Sue shared with us. She started by telling us about her typical day. An ideal typical work day. Okay, tell us about an ideal typical work day. Then you can tell us about reality. I stay home until about 11 o'clock in the morning and that's when I do my writing and creative thinking and creative strategising. And what time do you start then? uh, About 7 o'clock. So from 7 till 11? Yes. I then come into the uh, currently the centre of excellence and then my day is no longer mine. No. <laughs> my time is controlled by what fires have started, by what amazing research has just been done, what discoveries have been made, by this difficulty, this roadblock that's happened for somebody's research. So each day does start with a creative part. It used to be much more creative for my scientific writing, but now it tends to be more creative for looking at the national science debate or helping to promote geoscience nationally. But doing something that is creative requires consistent thinking, Mm -hmm. some time to concentrate and by partitioning that time off I then feel that I can get a certain amount of very creative work done in a day and then come and do the organisational work that is also in its way creative but in a different way Mm -hmm. so that I make a good environment in here, help people do things, rejoice when they've got a great discovery and push them along a little bit if they've been lagging. A whole range of those things that happen each day. And then what time would you typically go home? Usually about 7 o'clock at night. And then do you stop for the night? Yes, I absolutely stop for the night. Okay, because you would have been going 12 hours. Yes, yes. So you said that was your ideal typical day. Yes. How often do you achieve that? I would achieve that, I think, about half of the time that I'm here. And when I say that I'm here, we have a lot of international collaborations And I feel that the way to really make those work, and they work for a whole lot of sections of our centre, they work for PhD students and relationships, they work for really front-edge research, they actually advance our, or they broaden our intellectual scope Mm -hmm. and the resource scope that we have. And the resources are actually in hard cash, but also in the instrumentation that we get access to, because in our line of work we need geochemical analysis and there's a huge range of instruments that are relevant to that and we can't have them all. We have a really good instrument park that I've built up here but also we need access to other instruments to do particular pieces of research. So those international connections are really, really critical both to the research and to the broad environment of the centre. So I'm away a lot, I travel a lot, and that's making the connections, keeping the relationships going, or actually doing research while I'm away. So is it important to physically be there to sustain those collaborations? Yes. We hear all these things that, you know, Skype's great, you can telephone people internationally. There are a whole lot of things that mitigate against that. I have tried those techniques. First of all, we're on the other side of the world. The mm. time difference itself makes it difficult to interact. When we have a co-to-tell defence, I've been sitting through the night to be there 
virtually for a code to tell defence and it's not the same as being there. So to me, actually being on the ground, talking with people, being able to follow something up, go out to dinner and keep the conversation yeah. going, make the relationship because yeah. human relationships are really important in research. It's not just the science, it is that interaction and sometimes those interactions snowball. They create much higher synergy of work than you could actually do on your own and without that interaction. And you simply don't get that if you're on Skype, mm. uh, distanced and with a particular framework. Mm. So mm. yes, I think so being, there, being really there, there is no substitute. So let's talk more about your actual research. So what is it that you're doing personally and then we can talk mm. about what you're doing in the centre. Well, what I'm doing personally really reflects what the centre is doing in a way it's understanding how the earth works yeah that's a fairly big question (laughs) it's a huge question I call it a four-dimensional sudoku (laughs) because not only is it about the three dimensions of this amazing planet that we stand on but it's also about time and in geological studies in geological science time is a huge dimension but over those 4.6 billion years Many things have happened. The Earth's changed. We've got all our mineral resources. We've gotten places that have hazards such as volcanoes and earthquakes. So we have to have that fourth dimension. It's very, very important in geoscience. So putting all of that together, going down into the Earth, you know, we know more about the surface of Mars than we do about the bottom of the ocean. So why is that? Simply because there's been much more of a focus on Mars. Oh, when okay. At the time, there yep. was a huge focus on going to Mars, and of course it had to be very productive. We had to map it in all the ways that we could and bring back physical samples. Whereas with the ocean bottom, there hasn't been that momentum to do something with that. We haven't been able to do that with the inside of the Earth because we haven't had the tools. So you're trying to understand how the Earth works. What are the sort of applications or how does the research you do? Yes, to me one of the biggest impacts is the increase in knowledge about the earth. That increase in knowledge about the earth, if we had a lot of the knowledge today that we had when we were citing cities and things like that, we wouldn't have put them near the zones where there are likely to be earthquakes, likely to be mudslides, likely to be volcanoes. That's a very simple illustration. So understanding the nature of the earth and the processes that may happen on different time scales just helps inform civilization where to where to be. That's terrific. I just want to go understand, Sue, how you came to be um, interested in this problem of how the earth works. So where did you grow up? Did you have an early passion for this topic or is it an accident or how did you how did you come to be? Well, I was born in Cootamundra. Very uh, early in my life I moved to Goulburn and my parents were both school teachers. And my father was an amazing self-taught natural scientist. And I think he instilled in me the love of observation, thinking, sorting out why, and that created my thirst for that sort of thing. For, so what for, sort of gives some examples of the sort of things he would do together? Well, one of the things he would do, he's a very keen gardener. But it wasn't just normal gardening. He became very interested in taking gladioli, Edna Everidge's favourite flower, (laughs) and trying to create a different colour that had never been done in gladioli before. And then he told me all about Mendeleev's experiments with with plants and plant genetics, as it was at that time. You couldn't change them, you could just breed them. And so we had a a five-year running experiment on gladioli bulbs and 
trying to change the colour of them by the genetic process of pollinating differently and wow. and etc. But a whole range of things. His approach was very formative, yeah. and it was a very a why approach, you know, we would always discuss why something was like it was, not just look at it and, oh, isn't that nice, but why is this, and etc., etc. So I think he created in me that curiosity, which mm. translated into science. Mm. But early on, I guess my passion was really ballet. And, uh, oh, really? Yes, when I was about 16, I won a scholarship to the Royal Ballet School in London. Wow. So I had to make the decision, was I going to go to university or was I going to go on with ballet? And I decided I would go on to university. Any regrets about that choice? No. As my body gets older, very fewer regrets. <laughs> I loved ballet. It was a, pa- a passion I, I, I had. And I often look back and I think it taught me a lot of things. It taught me concentration, perseverance. And I really think that it helped form the way I do things and the way I will stick at things and the way I'll persevere now because it, it, it's a very demanding <laughs> activity. It, uh, so it's interesting you get the curiosity, sounds like a bit from your dad and his approach, but you get the persistence and the single-mindedness that sometimes you need in this field from yes, your ballet. Yes, yes, I hadn't yeah. actually put those together like that before, but yeah. that's probably quite true. A, a powerful combination for yes. academic, I suspect. Yeah. Yes. So, and where did you do your PhD? did my PhD at the University of Sydney. Okay. Yes. And in that sort of early career period, in terms of doing your undergraduate, your PhD and postdoc, what were some of your you know, highlights? Do you have particular positive experiences or even challenges during that early career? I think I had more challenges than positive experiences. Yeah, okay. I had a lot of positive experiences at school. I had some wonderful school teachers. They, along with my father, actually fostered my interest in languages and literature and and science. But at university, it was more challenges. Mm. I found some of the lecturers were perhaps not at the high standard that I innately thought they should be. Mm. I didn't know any better at that stage. Mm. But I went to university to do chemistry because I had been steered that way a little bit in um, by the science teacher at school. And I was quite upset when I went to the University of Sydney and I wanted to do science and I had to do chemistry, maths and physics. That mm. was fine. And then they said, and you had to do either geology or biology. And I thought, oh, no, I only want to do the really pure things. So I chose geology because I can't stand squishy stuff. And within the first month, I was absolutely hooked. Really, that's interesting. So it was really quite an an accident. An accident, a total accident. (laughs) And I thought, here is an amazing science. I can go and I do do the observation, I can do laboratory work, I can do chemistry that is much more complex than the traditional chemistry, and I just focused on it from that time. But I couldn't say I had an amazing cohort of lecturers Mm. in geology. had some very good ones in chemistry and physics and maths. But my passion was there. So what was it about the topic that grabbed you? Well, it is the fact that you can go out into nature and make observations. And I do love being in nature. I like bushwalking and I like the outdoors. But you could combine that with understanding things about the rocks and their significance in shaping the earth Mm -hmm. as it happens to be. And as I said, the chemistry of minerals is absolutely fascinating. It is so complex and 
uh, requires such problem solving to understand how different minerals coexist and what it means, it just seemed much more challenging and much more satisfying when yeah. I could do it. So a lot so were, of were there many women doing geology at that time? Yes, strangely enough, about a third of the class were women, okay. but only two of us actually went through and went into geologically based careers. Yeah. But it was a bit of an aberration at that time because there weren't many women practising in mm-hmm. geoscience at the level of lecturer or professor. Mm-hmm. There were some stars of women, I can think about three before that, who were real pioneers. Dorothy Hill was one of those okay. from the University of Queensland and Germaine Joplin at the University of Sydney. But there were very few women there. So it was a bit of an aberration that we had yeah, so many okay. in our class. And you're saying that you didn't find the lecturers and things particularly inspiring or stimulating? Or... No, in, in general I didn't. Yeah. Uh, and there was something of an attitude of it being a male Cambridge type mm. club. And I just thought, I'll show you all. <laughs> I was going to ask you how you coped with that. So is that how you coped, like determination yeah. to show Yes, you? yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. I, I really want to do this and I'm going to make, make a success of it. So, so it um, made you more determined? It did, yes. Yeah. And so then where did you do your PhD? I did it at Sydney as yeah. well. Yes. And what was your experience of a PhD in that early career period? I was very yeah. self-driven. Yeah. I had a supervisor who was a supervisor in name only. In my third year, I had arranged a trip to the British Museum of Natural History because they had some technology there that was brand new and I wanted to use on the uh, rocks that I was working on. And I managed to get a scholarship that was available for such purposes at the University of Sydney. And that was a bit of a struggle in itself. But um, I went there and my supervisor at the time was in Cambridge on sabbatical leave. And so I went up to visit him one day and we sat down for lunch and he said, Oh, now you must tell me what you're doing for your PhD. I thought, goodness me, this is the way I would not treat a PhD student, but never mind, I'm doing all right. (laughs) So I presume this is not how you treat PhD students. No. (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, did you have postdoc positions after that? No, I didn't have a a postdoc position. And as a matter of fact, I did my PhD while on a teacher's college scholarship. I I had a choice of a Commonwealth and a teacher's college, but I love teaching. I really love teaching. And I took the teacher's college for preference while everybody thought I was crazy. And I um, really enjoyed that. And I finished in three and a half years, which was... So it didn't really hold you back. It didn't hold me back. And in fact, I think that the time management aspect of having to quarantine some time for a task that wasn't related to your research really made me use my time effectively, much more effectively, than if I had all the time to spend on research. Mm. So I've never had any time to do 100% research. And I went straight into a fairly junior position at Macquarie University. It was soon after I came back from London, actually, from doing the work over there, and I submitted my thesis, actually. I wrote the final part of my thesis while I was at Macquarie. And uh, so I've been at Macquarie ever since. And obviously doing incredibly well. Let's talk about some of the things that have enabled you to be successful. 
I've found more assistance from people internationally than I did from people within the geoscience community in Australia. And I don't think it was a, a conscious thing mm -hmm. on the part of those people. It's just that perhaps at that time it wasn't an internationally highly regarded area of science in Australia. And it was pretty much an old boys club. I didn't encounter any obvious resistance, but I didn't get any mentoring mm. in, that was positive. But I did get some mentoring that was very positive from people whom I contacted overseas. And one of those people was Dale Jackson from the United States Geological Survey, who was working on similar rocks from the inside of the Earth in Hawaii to the ones that I was working on here. And he really guided me, helped me, encouraged me a lot. And um, how did you connect up with him? Because he said you contacted. I, I wrote to him. <laughs> I was looking at people who were doing really interesting work internationally. And I wrote to them, said I was working on this and I'd found this. And I found their work very interesting and would ask them a question or could they send me some reprints. You actually sent reprints <laughs> by post in those days. And then I really worked at going to international conferences and that meant saving up my own money because there were no grants at that time for yeah. people to do it. But it was a focus and it was something that was a high priority. And so I made myself known to people there and we formed good scientific relationships and they're the people who actually helped me. And I think scientifically they were out in front as well. So they were the things that really satisfied what I needed to understand how science should be done internationally. Yeah, and so you really develop those networks and then they've held you in good stead, it sounds. Indeed, time. indeed, yes. Yeah. The networks have changed, obviously, yep. because it, things change as you go on, but that method of working has been one that's served us really well. The first centre that came here was one of the national key centres a long time ago, in 1995, and we call that GEMOC, Geological Evolution and Metallogeny of Continents. But GEMOC, um, it became known. And now we go overseas and it's just a GEMOC diaspora. And I will go somewhere and they'll say, let's get all the old GEMOC people together and have a dinner. And, you know, this happens in France, in Italy, in, in China and Taiwan, <laughs> all around the place. So it's an enormously strong and positive network. And even though we have a cent in the Centre of Excellence now called CCFS, it's still the GEMOC bit that, <laughs> that everybody knows because GEMOC was the centre at Macquarie University and it was the centre that persisted after the Commonwealth funding finished for GEMOC. We were allowed to keep the name if we had money to do research uh, according to a research plan that ARC agreed to and we put in a, an annual report. It's different these and days. And how did you fund it? Well, we had a lot of industry yeah. linkage grants, multiple linkage grants with industry because they really did want to know how we did things and for us to do some more work with them, and we love working with them. And I've always had significant large amounts of funding from the Discovery, what is now the Discovery Program. Yeah. It wasn't the Discovery Program then. Yeah, yeah. So I've had a lot of personal Discovery funding and then a lot of linkage grants, and that enabled a is to support quite a wide group of people. Yeah, mm. which have gone out into the world. By the yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Well, one of the things in geoscience, it's hard to attract 
Australians in, to do PhDs in geoscience. First of all, when the companies are doing well and exploring, they pay, they pay so much more than we can pay. And then when it's not, they say, oh, well, there's no future in it. So <laughs> it's very difficult to get Australian. We have had a few, probably only about 10% of our people who graduated have been Australian. The rest are overseas, obviously. Yeah. I'm not one for affirmative action because that tends to say, well, you've got it because you're a woman. But I want fair employment and fair support of people. And we have, just by that approach, since 1995, we have had more than 50% women at every level, except perhaps the... the Although now we've got it at the highest level as well now. We've had 50% women, or more than 50% women, just by the way the environment is managed. Yeah. And, and so can you say more about that? What sort of practical steps did you take to manage the environment? Well, sure. Fairly? At first I wasn't aware that this had actually happened until yeah. people pointed out to me and they said, oh, it must just be the fact that a woman's leading the centre. And I thought, yeah, that's probably true because people feel more comfortable and probably that's a part of it as well. But in the work environment, I think it should be really open and supportive But while really making opportunities for people to do things to the best of their ability, being flexible, but also delineating aspirations. So you've got to work hard. You've got to be good. But we're a really supportive environment. Don't have meetings early in the morning when dad or mum might be looking after children, dropping them off. Don't have them after 3.30 in the afternoon when the same thing happens. And it doesn't matter if it's the dad or the mum, that's thinking about the family environment. And when they do that, they either make up work at weekends in their own time, they don't have to account to me for what they do, but if they are dedicated to their research and getting things done, I have no problem with people making flexibility that suits their hours and making the environment work so that we're not demanding them to do things at times when they can't they And can't doing it sort of sometimes without thinking. So just like you say, having early morning meetings but not thinking. Exactly, oh, yeah. What's the consequence of this? Precisely, yeah. yes, yes. So what about in your own life? Did you have children? I was blessed with getting two lovely stepchildren in the mid-80s. Okay. Uh, but only one of them actually stayed in Australia and yeah. for quite a few years she was here in her own going to university. So I acquired them when they were a little older. Yeah, So okay. I didn't have the day-to-day... I guess pressures that parents with small children are are put under, although I really understand them and I always understood them in the the work environment. And teenagers and stuff have their own challenges too. Uh, This is true, especially (laughs) stepchildren when there have been family situations you have to deal with. So, yes, but we are great friends now and it's been a very wonderful experience. But as you say, there were challenges, and especially when we have a teenager going to the design school and at a time when drugs were really, Uh, really um, prevalent at that stage and talking those things through in a way that was appropriate for that age group. So, yes. Just on a more practical basis, how do you fit everything in? How do you manage your time to be successful? Because I imagine, you know, you said already there's a lot of Mm. demands on your time. How do you do it? I think I work far too much, uh, okay. <laughs> and I, I would never recommend this to, <laughs> as in general. But having a centre as large as this does have so many aspects to it that you really need to be on top of if it's all going to work. Mm. And I have many people 
whom I absolutely trust to do what they do and I don't come down to managing minutiae at all. But there are demands all the time. There are demands, can you come and speak about this? Can you come and do that? And you must represent the centre as often as you can. So having a centre of this size has been an extra burden on the previous centre, which wasn't quite so large. So how do you structure it? Do you have teams or how do you manage the size of the centre? Well, we do have teams and there are, there are people embedded in nodes around yeah. Australia yeah. and we set up the research programs to run across nodes because we didn't want them to develop into silos, which yes. can easily happen. Yes. There are three main nodes and we've embedded people in those different nodes. I have people employed at Macquarie who work in the University of Western Australia. Right. So it forces us yeah. to be aware of all of those things. Yeah. We, we share PhD students. Yeah. So that is one of the ways that we've structured it to maintain contact, yet devolve responsibility for research. When I say devolve responsibility for research, there is accountability. Mm -hmm. People have to have goals at the beginning of the year, and I don't mind if they're changing goals, if it's a rolling set of goals, but at the end of the year there have to be outcomes because we have to be responsible back to report to it to the ARC. To the yeah. ARC yeah. and to the Australian people. We're using yeah. taxpayers' money. Yeah. We have to be responsible for that. And I must say there have been some changes in the way money is sent out, which depend on the way people have performed in the okay. research. Yeah. 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 So there's accountability at the end of the year. Yeah. So it's not a blank cheque. It yeah. can't be. No, no. <laughs> so that's the way it's managed. It's managed from a research topic point of view, a research program, yeah. which is across the nodes, and it's managed by the people in charge of those pieces of research. So yeah. part, of, part of it sounds like you've devolved some responsibility and that people have got accountability, mm-hmm. but you've also built systems for connection across. That's right. Yeah. Yes. So yes. What, what else has been important or what have you learnt as to how to be a successful leader of a big research entity? Talk a lot to people. Mm. That personal interaction can't be substituted. Mm. The other thing is when there are people who are not going to perform in the way you want and there's no practical way of getting rid of them, don't hang on to it. Quarantine that problem so that they're not impinging on the rest of the, yeah. the people. But don't try and solve it when it's not soluble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Choose your battles and always support the ones who are doing well. Yeah, and yeah. support those probably a bit more than you need sometimes. But um, I think it's really important to make sure that particularly the young ones who uh, are starting off on a career, all the assistance that they can get in many ways... Yeah. And one of the things that that I find uh, is that simply the number of references I have to write for people, and that's not trivial, sitting down and writing a reference. So I would probably have four or five of those a week that I I have to, I don't have to, but which I would not say no to, to to write. And just little things like that, that are important to that particular person, not important to me, and they're probably not important to the centre, that they're important to that person and they need that. Um, I, I can't say no to those mm, things. Mm. And uh, they do take a lot of physical time. Mm. Mm. So what do you say no to? I say no to refereeing papers from journals that I don't think are going to give me more knowledge. I would get maybe five requests a week for refereeing in high-impact journals. And... I try to pick the ones where I'm really going to learn something or where, again, they are young people really worth supporting and giving advice to. 
So you know who the author is, do you? Yeah, yes, yes. Okay. the yeah. author is. They usually yeah. give you the author in an abstract. So yeah. Oh, I would, okay. I would have we don't do that in our field. Oh. Yeah, no, so you, it's all blind. You can often oh. tell, but yes. you're not meant to. So you're selective around where you can learn something, but where you can also offer something to particular individuals. That's right, yeah. yes, yes. What else do you say no to? If you get asked to do, I don't know, be an editor or be on a committee or something, how do you make the decision whether you should do it? I guess the last few years I've been thinking, is this going to help the image of the centre? Okay. And then I evaluated from that and the amount of time it would have. As far as editorships go, I tend to say no to that at the moment because that is an ongoing responsibility of refereeing that you really have committed to. And that's something that I can give away because it's a large time input and that frees up that amount of time. So you're thoughtful about things. I have to be, be. yes. 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 I'm asked partly because I'm not very good at saying no to things. I used not be good at that because partly there's a flattery component. You think, isn't it nice I've been asked? Yeah. And then I think that rapidly gets overcome with, yes, but how long is it going to take and and what is the outcome? Is it going to be good for the centre? Is it going to be good for young people? Is it going to be useful for me? So those things then Mm. then come into judging Mm. it. Mm. But I've gotten over the the reaction to say yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's more having to persuade myself to say yes now. (laughs) For an academic to be successful, what do you think are the important elements of that? That's very interesting and I guess it would really vary from um, discipline to discipline. In your discipline, what does it take? In geoscience, I think you have to be a really good contributor to a very positive team environment. It's a complex science and as I've said, the way that we do our science here is that we go across discipline boundaries, which necessarily means we have to have experts from each discipline involved in each program, each Mm. research program that we do because we can't be experts in all of them. And science, while it's supposed to be absolute and black and white, is not. And there is so much personality, so many relationship interactions Mm. that are really important in science. You might have a person who is the guru in a particular aspect of, of geophysics, but he might not be a person you could work with and therefore it's not going to be productive. Mm. So it needs people who are really leading in their field but who also can work Mm. and contribute and deliver their own part of that. Mm. So And people work in different ways. So there are some people, of course, who don't always deliver on time and in a way that you would want them to, when I say in a way that you would want them to, incrementally and it's all always done at the last minute in a rush, but they are so good that it's worth working with them in the way that they work best Mm. to get the best out of them and to get the best outcomes. So it's an individual thing, but basically that personal interaction has to be possible and positive, I think. I think that's one of the most important things. It's a real theme in what you're saying because you talked about that as being so important even early in your career, developing those positive relationships and those networks. Yes, yes. And it's really interesting to hear you say that as a scientist, that 
those interpersonal things are so critical, actually. On the bottom of every advertisement I have responsibility for, it says being able to work positively in a team environment and contribute to a good workplace milieu. And that becomes an essential criterion. It's not desirable, it's an essential criterion. And that has often turned us off a particular applicant who might be very, very good, but who even in the interviews showed that that person wasn't going to work well outside their own sphere, yes. And and my guess is that that creates a positive culture all round. If you recruit lots of people like that, then that really boosts your team. The team that we have in in the centre, it's a really positive environment. It's a tough environment because they have to produce... But it is, in a, it is a very supportive environment. And the other thing is it's so highly multicultural. If you just walk out there, there's probably 10 countries represented mm. in the people mm. sitting out there now. Mm. And I think that's just as important as having a good gender balance. And again, it comes the ability to communicate with people that are from diverse backgrounds and things yes, like that. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Mm. I'm curious to understand what you see into the future. What's the next big challenge for you? What are you focusing on? I guess I'm focusing on our centre ends at the end of the year. Yeah. And so what's next after that? Well, something something that I've always thought about, and I thought about that in our previous centre, and that is succession planning. Yeah. And we have um, some really excellent people. When we started this centre, we actually were successful in getting 11 future fellows wow. in our centre. And uh, seven of those are at Macquarie. That's huge. It is, yes, it is, yeah. it is. Now, those people now are at the level where they now are chief investigators. Yeah. And it was interesting at our midterm review when we had the ARC team here, they had an interview just with the postgraduates. And they said to the postgraduates, okay, and where do you want to be in five, five years' time? And they all said, we want to have our own centre. <laughs> well, they're not quite there yet, <laughs> but the future fellows are. We've had a couple of international people join us, including one, one of the future fellows, and they will be very good leaders. And I look at myself as handing over succession mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to that next generation mm-hmm. now, and very positively because they have a similar ethos and they are excellent scientists. So... I'm looking forward to providing the support and some of the perhaps advice, if they ask for it, they won't get it if they don't ask, (laughs) Um, in setting up and running a new centre. Yeah, they're lucky to have you. Another question, sort of now looking a little bit back, if you could know everything that you know now and travel back in time, what would you tell your younger self? Yes, you can, but don't push people as quickly as you used to. I guess I didn't have any good role models at university when I I went through, so I tended to act a little distantly and in in the way that I I was treated until I thought, this is not right, and you know it's not right. So the great thing is that you're providing now an amazing role model for this next generation. So they won't be able to say that. You probably should ask them if they think that. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps that's the next round of interviews. (laughs) So if a bright young woman came up to you and said, should I become an academic, what would you say? Or should I become a geoscientist, what would you say to them? Geoscientist, yes. It is one of the most wonderful careers that you can have. Yeah. Travel and do your work. It's wonderful. Excellent. Academic, these days academia is changing. There is so much accountability. And while I don't think... That we shouldn't be accountable 
it, it is dominating time and making roadblocks where it shouldn't. Mm. And universities aren't businesses. Mm. We have a crop of people running universities as if they would like them to be businesses. Mm. And I think you need more vision and more appreciation of exchanging knowledge, gathering knowledge, so teaching and research are really the, the, the baseline things that you need in a university. What are the sort of ways in which universities have been run like businesses that actually hurt, in your view, universities? I think it is the way that academics have to do so much of the secretarial work that used to be done. Not that I think there should be a range of secretaries, but there are poor systems in place that are impediments to doing particular processes quickly. And as I, as I said, so much accountability, so many, so many rules and processes mm. that are unnecessary. Mm. And they put roadblocks in the way instead of easing the way to enable you to do things. And I, I think that's the biggest thing. So mm. more vision, less bureaucracy. Absolutely. Mm. Couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> is there anything that we haven't discussed that is important in terms of helping people's careers or in your own career or, or anything you think that the ARC should be doing? We've talked about what universities shouldn't be doing from <laughs> a bureaucracy point of view. Oh, I think, I think ARC does a very good job within its remit and within its small resource pot. Yeah. Uh, with the Academy of Science, I'm working with a lot of very good people there to really connect with our um, parliamentarians yeah. and to show that scientists and academics are ordinary people, that we do really good things that benefit the nation, and really we need more support in the terms of dollars. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because one-on-one -on -one now we're making a lot of headway with a lot of those people. And the new COO at the Academy of Sciences, Anna Maria Arabia, is very knowledgeable about connecting with, mm -hmm. with politicians. Mm -hmm. And I really think making those leaders of our country understand that this is the engine room, this is the future. We might be good at cricket and we might be good at football, but we're very good at science and humanities and intellectual pursuits in Australia. And I'll be happy when I see a ticker tape parade of some of those people going down George Street yeah. uh, rather than the sports people. Yeah. So if we can really make inroads to convey to the people who govern us that this is really important. Yeah. Uh, knowledge, research, teaching, the next generation, yeah. this is the future of Australia. Fantastic. I think you're going to be an amazing voice in that space. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I sincerely thank Sue for her time and for openly sharing her views. I especially loved hearing Sue's views on the importance of having a mentor and being a good contributor to a team environment and being effective interpersonally to flourish in academia. For more insightful stories from the Women in Research project, please go to womeninresearchinoneword.org.au. Thank you for listening. Thank you.